This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You need to show people the worst possible harm that that negligence could have caused, because that's what the case is about. I'm asking you to do is to focus on what you can control, because that's where the power lies. The Dalai Lama uh, has a saying that in the face of anger, justice evaporates. If you can't focus group it, you have to be very, very critical of your process. The facts aren't good. You can't create a miracle. We can agree to disagree and be zealous advocates for our clients. Quit worrying about looking perfect. You're not going to. That'll come in time, but you can still be an effective litigator. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Welcome back to Trial Lawyer Nation. Uh, Today, I have my partner, Mallory Peacock, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the things we learned uh, from actually from putting on our big rig boot camp. Both, uh, we want to talk about some of the substantive law things that we learned in researching and preparing for the presentations we gave that we think may be helpful to other uh, lawyers, but also some of the things we learned in putting on the the online presentation that may be uh, applicable and helpful for Zoom trials and even Zoom hearings. Uh, well, I personally hope we're not going to have to have Zoom trials, but I know, uh, you know we don't know what the future is going to hold, and at some point a court may order us to do, the, do it, and we want to talk about the best ways to do that. So how are you doing, Mallory? I'm doing good. You know, we're coming off a big high from last week from that presentation. It was pretty awesome. I mean, we had, I think, up to 200 people watching, which was really exciting. But it was a lot of energy and a lot of effort, especially for you uh, to put that on. So, you know, yeah, playing, playing catch up. and Yeah, it was a lot of fun. For those of you all that, that didn't join in with the Big Rig Boot Camp, it was, you know, trucking specific. Uh, but it was a six-hour seminar, and I was the only formal speaker, although we did have a lot of – we used Cameo and had a lot of uh, celebrity guest appearances, basically, because Cameo allows you to pay a celebrity to record something, a message that you can then play. Uh, and then we – I don't know how Delisi Friday, our marketing director, finagled this, but she got uh, David Kushner – Kushner, I should say, from the uh, – Anchor man in the office, he's a comedian and actor. She actually got him to do a live feed and appear, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, not necessarily law-related, but, you know, if you're going to have a six-hour virtual conference, you got to keep people awake and engaged and entertained. Yeah, and I think, so there's, I think, two really amazing things that happened at the seminar. One was that you spoke pretty much straight for almost six and a half hours, which takes a lot of energy and um a lot of stamina. I mean, it was, it was a lot of speaking and presenting. Um, But then um, the second thing that was really cool that happened is that we basically kept our audience for the entire six and a half hours. And you would think through zoom, we'd lose some people. um, But I think a big part of it was uh, your presentation style. And then the way we put it together, which is why I think we can learn something about zoom trials from the presentation. today. Yeah, well, one thing we did that I think really helped is we had a uh, we, we spent the money and got a professional film crew. Uh, so we had two cameras, which meant we could do multiple camera angles. We could easily switch from, you know, just me talking to uh, me talking in the corner with the screen and me knowing where I am in relation to the screen so that I can 
look at and point to the to the screen, and it looks like I'm looking at pointing the screen to the viewer. Um, I think those things really help, and I think that uh, you know the ability to stand. Although my feet did hurt, uh, starting about four hours, uh, the ability to stand makes such a difference in gesturing and body language. Uh, it's really hard when you're seated in a seat to really you know express yourself, get out there, uh, and I think that you know. It'll, we should think of it for big hearings, but definitely if we had to do a Zoom trial, you know, instead of just sitting in front of a webcam, having someone else with a camera that can follow us around, that can uh, that can allow us to stand and gesture, uh, and you know, even use exhibits, use posters, interact with things, is going to be crucial. Yeah, I think um, you know, I have noticed that whenever I do Zoom hearings, I feel like my energy is lower. But part of it is because you have to sit in one space. A small space so that you can stay within the zoom screen um you know for the entirety of the hearing so you're I, I sit i mean i don't really have a place set up where i can stand but seeing you do that i'm kind of thinking about somehow rigging something like that at home so that i can stand for hearings because i think it would increase my energy um but the hand gestures i think i are it's part of the way i speak anyways and so um it you know it something is lost without that and it's a really important part of nonverbal communication, and judges are humans too. I mean, they, they get a lot from nonverbal. Uh, David Vaughn actually circulated a, a paper uh, in opposition to, to Zoom trials, and the research was that jurors get a lot from nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication is an important part of human communication, and because people are just sitting there in front of the screen, uh, we lose that, and it's one of his reasons for not wanting to do Zoom, do Zoom trials, but I'm really thinking that you know, once we, you know, the COVID numbers in Bear County, hopefully they continue to be down when we release this uh, in 13 days. But right now we've had two weeks of, you know, very reduced cases. Things are on a downward trend. I'm hoping, you know, if we can get back to at least some of us working part time in the office that we could, you know, work up a little Zoom studio where we have a little, okay, here's where the camera is. It's going to be from the waist up. Uh, we know that we can move. We know that we can bring a poster if we needed to or something to help uh, to help with that. And then maybe even, you know, for a really, really big hearing, work with someone else to do the audio visual and, you know, just to give give an option to give better presentations to the court. Because I think that, you know, the Zoom screen share works. It's not bad. But uh, if we could do something, you know, to keep the judge awake and engaged and then definitely if we're going to do a jury trial. We've got to keep some way to keep these people interested. Uh, we're not going to be able to play funny celebrity videos during the trial. Uh, but, I mean, I think the switching camera angle, so it's not always the same camera angle, is really important. The, the movement, the body language, the use of visuals, and inter actually interacting with the visuals was all really important. And I think if we're going to have to have a jury trial, I mean, I think we're going to just have to invest in the money to find a way to get you know, someone to film us better uh, and then figure out how to get that to feed to the court Zoom uh, so that we can present uh, our case in a, in a more persuasive, entertaining, engaging manner. Yeah, you know, I was surprised at how big of a difference changing the camera angles and changing the view uh, made. I mean, honestly, when uh, Delisi said that they were going to do that, I was kind of like, oh, well, that, that'll be nice. But I didn't, I didn't really understand what the benefit would be, but when I saw it in action, um, basically she changed the screen view 
at least every minute, right? So almost every minute we're moving, we're moving the speaker to the bottom corner, we're putting up a slide, we're putting you back in full focus without the screen. So constantly changing it, um, it kept, kept you engaged and it didn't feel like you were just staring at the exact same thing um, for hours and hours. So actually that made such a huge difference and to me surprising. You know, I, I have not been able to to make my schedule work to go, but I, I know a lot of people that have gone to the Mark Lanier Trawl Academy. Uh, and one of the things he does, I mean, it, for those of you who don't know Mark Lanier, he's an absolutely brilliant lawyer, multiple, multi-billion dollar verdicts. Uh, part of the joy of the advantages of having that kind of success is you can really do things first class because you're working on, on mega cases, uh, so you can spend mega resources. So he does a three camera setup when he does a depot, one camera on him, one on the witness and a document camera. And then when he's presenting depot clips at trial, he ensures that he spends no more than seven seconds in any one view. Uh, and the reason he says is because if you look at TV, they're always switching the view. They never show a view for more than seven seconds. And ever since I saw that, every time I watch, TV, I watch a news interview or something like that, you know, I start timing it. And it's true. They don't ever, you know, even if someone's giving a big, long answer, they still switch views during the answer. Uh, and I think it's just to keep you engaged. It's so easy just to drone off when you just see the little talking head. And I think that's some of the Zoom fatigue that we're, I don't know about you, but I'm getting huge Zoom fatigue. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I just feel like I'm on Zoom constantly. I've already been on Zoom for like four hours today. And yeah. I just feel like. It's, it's never ending, but part of it is, it is, it's, you're staring at the exact same thing in the exact same screen for, for hours. And, you know, to keep a juror's attention in the courtroom when there's absolutely no distractions, they don't have their phones, they don't have anything else. All they can do is stare outside, maybe if there's a window. Um, it's still hard to keep their attention. So I can only imagine how much harder it's going to be unless it's something truly dynamic and something that you can keep them interested in. Like a, it, and so it feels like a movie almost, um, or a TV show. Yeah. So if we do have to have a jury trial or, you know, working with a, an evidentiary hearing with Zoom, I think it's really important to think about, you know, how can we be regularly switching it up? Either having a, a camera where someone can stand and, and articulate and you know, use gestures. Uh, how can we bring in exhibits, both slides uh, or even a physical a poster, a model, or something that someone can use to, slip, to show the judge or show the jury. But think about how we're going to constantly be changing the visual as the presentation goes on so that people just don't, you know, tune out. And, you know, with Zoom, it's so easy for them just to open another window and be surfing the way. You can't even tell. It looks like they're looking intently. And, you know, they're, they're reading TMZ or the news or, you know, YouTube videos or something else while they're going. Yeah. And, and so, you know, with that, I think it's not just the visual, but it's the, the energy that you have to be able to bring to the Zoom uh, platform to keep people engaged. So it's not just what they're looking at. And honestly, um, I was telling you earlier that even the slides that had very little on them, one or two word phrases, um, as long as you kept your energy up, it was still engaging for people. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how you kept your energy for six and a half hours of yeah. speaking? <laughs> well, part of it is just like being in court where you can be absolutely exhausted before you start the day. You can almost collapse when the jury walks out of the room. But when you're on, you're on. And part of it is when I'm on, I'm on. And, you know, it's easier with a live audience. I'll be honest. Uh, but, you know, 
I just imagined a live audience. And, you know, once I was there, I was on. I, I had not had a lot of sleep. I was up till three in the morning and then got up at six. So uh, for two nights in a row. Uh, so I was fatigued, but, you know, the adrenaline hits and you just go. Uh, but with energy, the other thing is you can't be high energy the whole time because then you just manic, you're frantic, you're going to stress people out. And then and, and then, then it just becomes background noise and they tune you out. So it's the management of energy. It's, it's the purposefully going up and then down and then up and then down. And, you know, having a, a, a range of vocal inflections, a range of pacing. Uh, you know, some of that, it wasn't totally conscious. Some of that was the slides I used. So some slides had big quotes. And so then I would turn to the slide and I would read the quote. And, you know, that would be a lower energy slide because then they're focusing more on the, on the slide and not on me. Uh, or even, you know, I've got the little breaks when I got to play video clips. You know, you play a video clip, then you can, like, turn it off for a little bit. Um, but then when there's a slide that just had a couple words on it, was just kind of, you know, telling people, giving them a reminder of what I'm talking about, then I had to be higher energy because then it was on me. Uh, so it's just that that uh, constantly kind of changing it up and thinking about what your flow of energy is going to be. And it's important during a trial, too. I mean, you've got your... You know, you've got your rules. That's going to kind of be a medium energy thing, like an opening statement. Uh, then, you know, your teaching is going to be high to medium energy. And then you've got your story that's going to start off lower and then get higher and higher towards the climax. And then you got to drop off a little bit again and you go to who you're suing and why. And, you know, that's more of a medium energy thing. So, you know, you're just going up and down on stuff. And it's that contrast uh, that really gets people interested. I'm still working on mastering it. I've been working for a little over a year, I guess, with Sari de Lamont on that kind of stuff. Uh, but it really, I mean, I don't know how much you've, you've noticed it, but to me, it really seems to have made a difference. I think it made, I think it made a huge difference. And I could tell, um, because I've also worked with Sari, so I can kind of pick up on some <laughs> of the things that she's taught you. Um, yeah. But also, I've known you for a long time and seen you do a ton of presentations. And so I can tell the difference from before you uh, started thinking about these things. But, I mean, energy management is such a complex thing to me. I, I have I have trouble figuring out when it should be high energy, when it should be low energy, when we should be calm. I mean, I, I have a natural tendency to speak loud and quickly, um, just because that's sort of my natural tone and my natural voice. And so I guess making myself stop doing that has been a real challenge for me. And I know you have a natural tendency to also speak really quickly. How how have you kind of managed slowing down what it has helped you figure out a way to slow yourself down and maintain high energy well i what really started this was more than this is probably 15 18 years ago uh, i was trying a case which i thought was a slam dunk i actually thought this was one of the cases that was going to put me on the map rear end collision great venue uh trucking case and I thought I had the case in the bag. The defense lawyer thought I had the case in the bag. The bailiff thought I had the case in the bag. And after my closing, the court reporter said, you're going to lose this case. I'm pissed. I'm like, what the hell are you saying I'm going to lose this case? Because you're going to lose this case. You talk too fast. The jurors had no, under, no idea what, they said, what you said. They couldn't follow you. You're going to lose the case. And lo and behold, they, uh, they wanted me to win. But they initially put that the truck driver was negligent and that the he was in course of scope, so the company was liable, and they put the damage amount, 
But then they felt sorry for the truck driver, and one of them said, look, if we just leave question number two, the company will pay, and we can – they crossed out yes and wrote in no on negligence on question number one because they wanted the company to pay and not the truck driver, um, and which was a zero verdict. Luckily, we got a new trial, and it worked out. Uh, we still ended up uh, settling it because the damage number they wrote in was a lot more than the offer, and the defense lawyer didn't think it was going to happen twice. So it worked out, but it, it taught me an important lesson that uh, – even if I couldn't get out everything I wanted to say, slowing down uh, so that, you know, making the the talk about the listener uh, and not about me and what I think was important. Uh, so I think that was a big thing. The other thing has really been a mindset change. So what, yeah, and really, I used to think that it was my job to win the case, uh, which sounds like, of course, it's your job to win the case, right? Uh but it's not because I don't have the power to do that job. I don't have the power. I don't make the decision of whether we win or not. I decide whether I'm willing to do the work and put in the effort to give us an opportunity to win. But the jury decides who wins and who loses. It's my job to guide them and provide them with what they need, with what they need to do justice. I need to provide my good jurors with the ammunition they need to go back in the jury room and argue the case for me. Uh, and with that mindset, then what's most important is not me getting out everything I have to say. It's me ensuring that they understand it and they're able to articulate it. And, 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 you know, learning to, you know, make eye contact with people, make sure they're getting it. You know, did you get that? You know, look for the little nod, if not, go back. Um, has really helped. And just being conscious of the fact that I talk too fast. Yeah, I think that's always the first step is recognizing the problem. <laughs> At least for me, that's been a big step for me is recognizing that I do speak very fast and I speak very loud. And it can be, if, if I'm especially in front of a jury and I'm right in front of them, it can be too much. Like it's yeah. too loud right in your face. Um, and so managing that and recognizing that it can be a problem is the first step. I never would have thought I used too loud. That's interesting. You know, I, it's, I've i only had a few people say it to me, but um, but I think part of it is I'm not very good at, when I get excited about something or passionate about something, I get louder and louder and louder, especially when I'm telling a story that's interesting to me. Um, and, if, you know, when I'm telling our client stories, those are interesting to me. <laughs> so yeah. I get louder and faster and more passionate about it. Um, but if I'm passionate and I haven't gotten the listener there yet, it, it doesn't translate. It just feels loud and abrasive as opposed to they're right there with me. They're just as excited about it. I get too excited too fast. I think. And, and that's the problem is that we're too into what we're thinking and what we're feeling. And we need to be thinking, you know, how can I tell the story in a way that's going to elicit that feeling in them? What is it that made me feel that way? Well, it wasn't someone telling me this excited story. It's just me getting all these pieces and putting it together and figuring it out. And then you get that aha moment and you get pissed and, um, you know, so I think sometimes we have to turn it down a little bit. Uh, and there's a time for passionate advocacy. I'm not saying that we never get loud, that we never, you know, argue passionately or teary-eyed, because I definitely do that. Uh, but it's it's timing. you got to get them there first. You just can't start off, you know, you start off your opening statement, you know, they just killed my client and he was such a good person and start crying. And, you know, you just, you're going to turn people off because they're not there with you. I mean, you know, really and truly, if there's someone you don't know and they just break down client crying, you don't really want to go talk to them and find out what's wrong with them. You're just like, oh, my God, i got to deal with this person, you know. And it's just, you know, meeting the jurors where they are. Uh, but it's just a, it's a mindset thing. Uh, and, and changing my mindset uh, 
I think that's why I've done so much better since I read Carl Bettinger's Twelve Heroes, One Voice. Um, I think that's what it's called. His book on the hero's journey, how to try yeah, Jerry Trial. Because it freed me from my thought that I had to somehow win the case. That my job is to guide the jurors towards winning the case and, and to really reverse roles with the jurors, which uh, I should have got that from trial lawyers college, but I was really too busy reversing roles with all the other people and not the juror. Um, and so I, I think that that uh, has really helped me slow down. And then, you know, working, even then the management of energy, I did not, no one really talked to me about that much before Sorry to Lamont, to be honest with you. Um, so it's something I'm really getting from working with her. I mean, honestly, before she talked about it, it's not something I had really considered. Um, but I remember one time, I don't remember where we were, but it was me, you, and Sonia, and Sari, and we were in a hotel room. And you were practicing something. Yeah, let's be clear. <laughs> we were practicing. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I <laughs> had a speech the next day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No, no, no. We were, we were practicing. You were practicing your speech, and Sari was there, and so she was giving you feedback. And but she was really telling me and Sonia. She said, "Think about how you're feeling about the speech, right? And um, when you get really passionate about something, if me and Sonia weren't there yet, we would start holding our breath. And then Sari would point it out to us, and I didn't even realize we were doing it. And she was like, "See, you're not breathing. You're not breathing." And it really got me thinking more about energy. Manager. I mean, I just never thought about it that way. Um, yeah. I wish I knew how to articulate it yet. You know, I just, I just know that I can't stay high energy the whole time. I have to go up and down and I have to try to, to bring my audience there and not assume, you know, that they're going to be where I am before I start the speech or start the trial. And it's an ongoing journey of learning and discovery. That's all I can say. Each year, the law firm of Callan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. And now back to the show. So one of the other things that I think um, helped with the presentation, but I also think it helped with the management of energy is the different kinds of slides that you use um, throughout the six hours. I mean, I guess I would classify them into a few different kinds. There was a kind that's like a teaching slide where it has regulation written on it and certain pieces highlighted and summarized and it's very busy um, and it has a lot of information. So that's sort of like a learning slide. Then there's just sort of like a topic slide that just is you're talking and there's just a reminder about what the subject is for the audience to watch. Um, and it's, it's, they were just sort of almost blank slides except for like a little phrase or a little topic or a little quote to remind people what the goal was. Um, and then there were just sort of transition slides, like here's what's coming, you know, not necessarily something you're talking about now, but just preparing people for what they should be looking out for in the future. And that really helps you with management of energy because you knew that the blank 
almost blank slides are the ones where you needed high energy and the ones with a lot of information, you needed lower energy because you need to give the audience time to read it and digest it before you start talking about it. And then you've been in trial with me. We actually put in black, all black slides so that there's nothing appearing on the screen uh, when we're trying a case so that when I want the jury 100% on me, I, I don't want a word on the screen. You know, it's, it's a little different on a, on a video screen because they can look at the word and at me at the same time because you can do the picture in picture. And it, and it gave them something to break it up. But in trial, you know, during the pivotal, like when I'm talking about something pivotal and emotional, you know, I don't want to have the word, you know, mental anguish or love or something like that on the screen because are they looking at the screen? Are they looking at me? What are they supposed to look at? So during that point, I want a black screen. And then, you know, if, if I want them to look at something, I need, I need to be looking at whatever, wherever I want the jury looking, I need to be looking. So if I have like a picture of the, let's say it's a death case and someone passed away and I have a picture of the, of the widow and the man who passed away, well, then I need to go look at that with the jury so they know where I want them to look and that we're all look, we're having a shared experience we're looking at together. And then I should take it off. I shouldn't necessarily leave it on the screen because, again, if I leave it on the screen, are they looking at that? Are they looking at me? You know, uh. yeah, it, it can be it can be confusing. Um, I think I think people do that too much as they have too much busyness behind them. And then the jury doesn't know what they're supposed to be doing. Are they supposed to be reading what's behind you? Are they supposed to be listening to you? Are you even talking about the same thing as what's behind yeah. you? You really have to think about that when you're giving um, a presentation and especially an opening or a closing. I think a lot of us use PowerPoint and, and, and I will confess that some of those two word, three word slides were done for this reason because I was speaking for six hours and I needed to remember what I was going to say next. Um, but I think a lot of us use PowerPoint as our outline or as our, you know, almost like our speech and we put way too much in there. Whereas if we would just practice or have a little outline that only we could see put up somewhere like, you know, print it out like poster size and put it where the jury can't see it and you can, uh, like right in front of the jury box or something. Uh, it would allow us something to keep organized but present better because again, are presented as a title, like, okay, now we're going to talk about this, and you look at and you look at it. Now we're going to talk about, you know, pain, and then take off and go back to a black slide, and then talk to the jury about pain, because if they're reading the word pain, or they're looking at different pictures or different graphics while you're talking, it, it, it distracts from it. Whereas, you know, if I was doing a Zoom trial, I might want something up, I want something but I want it where it's picture in picture. I know where it's going to be in pain, and then I can be pointing to it. And I was all looking at this together, and this is what this shows. Because without the human interaction, I may need to have more visuals. I think on a, on a, if we ever do a Zoom trial, we're going to do two or three times as many visuals. Oh yeah, I think you have to. I mean, I think you almost have to constantly have something that can be a visual, just so that you can change, be changing the camera angle to keep the screen dynamic and interesting um, to the juror. I mean. I think, yeah, I think you'd have to have a visual for almost every second of what's going on. Yeah, if I had a Zoom trial of any consequence, uh, you know, we we consulted with so many theater people uh, for trials. If you, if you look at a lot of the consultants, you know, David Ball, Josh Carton, a lot of the consultants come out of the theater world, which makes sense because, you know, the trial is a live, in-person, interactive event. If we ever go to Zoom trials, I think we really need to talk to movie, film, and TV people and get them to help us put our presentations together because they know how to tell. You know, people can do a 20-something minute, you know, a 30-minute TV episode, there's what, 24, 21 minutes of actual content? Um, 
And people can tell a story of a trial and make the viewer want it to come out a certain way in those cases, in those shows. So, you know, how, how do they do that? You know, how can we do that? Uh, now, we can't do it in 21 minutes because we have to put on more witnesses and we have to meet all of our evidentiary burdens and everything. But uh, getting them to, to show how people, how to engage people on, on the screen, I think it's going to be really important. And I think the other advantage is, at least on a big case, I think our side is more likely to spend the time and money to do that than an insurance company. So I, I think an insurance company is probably have them stuck behind a, a laptop, you know, computer or a, just a regular webcam. I think we may be able to just really overwhelm, you know, overwhelm them on having a better visual presentation, at least at first. Yeah, I think, um, I think too, by preparing for a Zoom trial, we could be better in person in court trial attorneys too, because it really th- gets you thinking about visuals um, and the way that you're coming across. And I think, I think every lawyer, myself included, sometimes has things go on too long. Yeah. <laughs> um, people testifying, witnesses, even opening or closing, sometimes it just goes on too long. You've said it, you don't need to keep saying it, they get it. Um, and so with Zoom, we're really going to have to be more judicious about that because you're only going to get people's attention on Zoom for so long. So you, you don't want a, you know, five hour witness if you can avoid it. You're going to want to have it as succinct and as, um, clean as possible. And that goes into preparation as well, though, because, you know, if you're going to play a deposition, you need to go into that deposition thinking, I need a 10 minute clip out of this three hour deposition. How am I going to organize this so that I can get that testimony in a short, easy to understand way? Yeah, my experience that when I have long deposition clips, it's when I put off the art that I mean the task of editing to the last minute and I'm just going through and making one run and handing it to someone to, or doing it myself the night before. Um, you know, when you really think about things, you know, you start with a jury charge and then you do a root cause analysis, you know, before you do a depot, you have a plan. This is what I want to prove. And then you stick with it. This is my best case. This is what I want to prove. And I'm going to resist the temptation to get drawn down all these other rabbit trails. And I'm going to put on my case and then I'm going to sit down. You have a, a better more coherent, tighter trial. But, you know, also, you know, working with graphic artists, and you don't have to work, you know, companies like High Impact do beautiful work. I mean, I don't want to, and we still use them for medical exhibits, uh, but they're expensive. Uh, you can, you know, I think the best thing we've ever done as a firm is we hired a graphic artist. Uh, we, we did it for our marketing department, uh, but he also works with us on cases. And you don't have to have a full-time graphic artist, but if you go to Upwork, you go to lots of different places, you can find graphic artists that will work on a contract basis uh, for a lot less money than legal exhibit companies. And get the, you know, what you're doing, trying to do is present, is convey a message, not make something that's really pretty and snazzy. Uh, you can really create some really simple graphics that really help you with your case. And, I, you know, I think this the, with witnesses, the more we can bring in visuals, bring in photos, bring in videos, uh, you know, the more interesting they are and the easier it is to keep the jury because they're good. they get a little bit of testimony, then they get a visual look at, and a little more testimony, and let's watch a video, then a little more testimony, and it just it keeps them engaged and active. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I will say too, uh, for the audience that feels like they can't spend much money, um, a lot of the trial visuals that we used in um, mine and Michael's last trial, I created through PowerPoint. Uh, 
So if you if you're if you really cannot, you know, spend a lot of money, these things can be simple. They don't have to be complicated or beautiful to get your point across. You just have to think about what is the point I need to make with the visual and then make that point and leave it alone. You don't need it to be complicated and you don't need it to be, um, you know, a bunch of colors or a bunch of, you know, a bunch of complicated graphics. I mean, you can do stuff through PowerPoint too. And actually a lot of colors and complicated graphics sometimes detract because we had our, we're doing an internal training session and we had our graphic artist do my first PowerPoint and, and I got it to him late. So I didn't get time for a lot of feedback. And some of the things he did were really cool, but some other things he did, there was, it was too busy and it was too hard to see what am I supposed to be reading. Uh, and the ones I've done myself, which are much simpler and don't look as pretty, I've gotten better feedback on because it was very clear that this is what I want you to read. Yeah, yeah. Being clear um, with the jury of what you should be taking away from the slide or the exhibit or the poster um, is really critical and almost I mean, not almost always, always we show our graphics to people who are not involved in the case um, and are preferably not lawyers. So you can say, what what do you get from this? What do you see here? What are you looking at? Um, and if they don't, they don't get it pretty quickly, then you need to change it back. It's not, use, it's not useful. And we've done that before. We've created graphics and we've sent them around and realized that, you know, it does not convey the message we think it conveys. And we have to explain it. If you see a graphic and person thinks one thing and then we, we're having to try to convince them it really says something else, then we're losing. I mean, why should we ever put something in front of a jury that doesn't help us um, as far as if we're, if we're creating it? I mean, sometimes I know you have negative evidence. you got to get out there and massage it. But if we're creating an exhibit, it should, from the very first glance, support our case. Uh, and a lot of things that, you know, and things that I paid a lot of money for, you know, I had someone create a visual for me showing because he had a lot more treatment before than after with an aggravation case, but they decided to put in like a needle an injection for every ESI the guy had had epidural steroid injection before, and it made it look like he had a bunch of painful invasive treatment before the crash, whereas a simple timeline was a much better exhibit. Uh, and so we ended up spending money on that and then not using it because it actually, the graphic actually hurt our case. I was so yeah, mad. They're like, how could you give me this? You know, they, they don't, you know, they, they, they put themselves out there as, you know, we're courtroom persuasion experts, but they're not. They're experts at making pictures. Yeah, and I think that um, there's been a real mind shift change for me in the last year or two about my role as the attorney. Um, and we're here to get the information to the jury in the most easy to understand way possible that supports our case, of course. So we're advocates, but we're also storytellers. And if your story doesn't make any sense, you're going to lose. And, yeah. and so everything that you put effort into should be towards that end, creating a simple story where you win. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be complicated. And just because we're lawyers doesn't mean it should be complicated. I know a lot of lawyers overcomplicate things because yeah. they're lawyers and they feel like they need to earn their money or something. Yeah, you can't uh, you can't win a complex case. Every every case deep down is a simple case. It's just you know way back when when Joe Jamel tried Pennzoil versus Texaco or Texaco versus Pennzoil. I don't remember who he represented, but I know he got a multi billion dollar verdict, and it was this really complicated oil and gas deal, and he turned it into you know does a handshake mean anything? If you shake on it, if you made a deal, a deal's a deal, and people got that. That made sense, and that's really what the whole case boiled down to is you know 
they had a memorandum of understanding, they had a handshake deal, you know, is that enforceable or not? Uh, and I think had he gone into all the regulatory stuff and email, and actually back then it probably wasn't emails, but communications back and forth, and, you know, just make a simple story. And, uh, you know, even product cases, usually if, if you can win them, turn it into a simple story, you know? They knew this roof was too weak, but they put it out there anyway. You know, the, they knew seats collapsed backwards and were in collisions, but they put them anyway, you know? I know we've been in that position before too when we, uh, when you have paid people to create animations or, you know, complicated models of the wreck or what happened, and then you show it to a regular person and it, they think it proves the exact opposite of what, yeah. what we thought we were proving with this great animation and this great visual, or there's something totally distracting on it. Like there's like a weird signpost or a weird tree, or and then the jury thinks that that's, that's something important in the case, but in reality, you just take it out and throw it away. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. sometimes they, want, they get too into providing all the little background details, and it's distracting. People are looking at the flowers and the trees and the bushes in the background instead of at the cars. And sometimes something a simpler, more scaled-back animation uh, works better, and sometimes, frankly, two toy cars. <laughs> Yeah. Work better than animation, um, and you don't have all the admissibility issues either. Uh, yeah, we've really gone, I think, in the last two or three years. From I think we're spending a lot less money with the with the professional exhibit companies uh, and going to much simpler exhibits that really seem to be getting the job done as well or better for a lot less money. Yeah. No, there is a t there is a place for complicated exhibits or animations or to spend money on things. I mean, it's not to say that there's not value in some animations or some big 3D scale models or, you know, oh, yeah. stuff like that that can get expensive. I mean, there is a place for those and they can be very valuable and very helpful. Yeah, we just did a 12 foot long 3D printed roadway to show all the different signs that over a half a mile that a driver passed by because he was distracted before he ran a stop sign. Uh, you know, we I just did where someone had like 20 something broken bones. I paid high impact a ton of money to show all the broken bones and surgeries and stuff like that. But for a lot of our cases, you know, we're able to make some very simple things in house that communicate the damages, but save our clients, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars uh, without any, you know, any lesser result. Thank you to everyone who attended Cowan's Big Rig Bootcamp in August. We had an excellent virtual turnout this year and are already thinking of how we can continue to raise that bar for next year. If you'd like to attend virtually in 2021, be sure to mark May 20th, 2021 on your calendar now and save the date. To stay updated with details as they become available, visit BigRigBootCamp.com and sign up for our mailing list. And now back to the show. So you know, for the, the webinar itself, um, you have been, I don't know if you, I think you've talked about it a few times on your podcast. You've been working on writing a book um, about trucking law and it's coming along quite well. I've read some of the chapters. They're very good, I will say. Um, so people are going to be excited once they get it. Um, but in kind of, in that vein, the webinar, the subject was trucking. And you chose what you called cutting edge topics, a, a few of them, uh, which are things that you've done a bunch of research on recently. And I thought that there were two that were particularly interesting that I think your audience might be 
uh, also interested in. And one of them was about electronic logs. So for the audience, what's kind of the background of electronic logging and trucking? Okay, sure. Well, um, logging is when a truck driver says whether they're driving, whether they're in the sleeper cab, whether they're off duty or whether they're on duty doing something other than driving. And the reason it's important is that a truck driver can legally work a 14-hour shift and drive. Basic, the basic rules, they can work a 14-hour shift and drive for up to 11 of those 14 hours. And in an eight-day work week, uh, they can work up to 70 hours. Uh, and after that, they have to stop driving. And you would think that's a lot of hours, 70-hour work weeks, 14-hour work days. But because truckers are paid by, typically paid by the mile, uh, and they have a lot of time where they get stuck at shippers, they get stuck doing things where uh, they don't, they can't, they either can't make the delivery and more importantly, they can't make a living because they only end up with two or three hours of legal driving time because they get stuck so many places uh, that they would cheat. They used to have paper logs that would keep track of all paper and they would cheat and they would say they were sleeping when they were driving or sleeping when they were, you know, doing, or, or you know, driving when they're not driving. They did all kinds of crazy stuff and we'd catch them. It'd be really easy to catch them. It was a lot of fun, but it was such a safety issue that, Starting in 2017, the government requires all uh, 18-wheelers to have what they call electronic logs. The way electronic log is, is if you're driving, the computer will automatically record that the vehicle is driving. So the, the driver should no longer, in theory, be able to say, I'm in the sleeper cab or I'm off duty when I'm really driving. Um, and so, you know, the thought was, well, this is going to end uh, all these issues. But in doing all my research for the book, I found a bunch of ways that truck drivers can cheat and still work more hours than legally allowed and hide that from their uh, from the government, from us, and you know sometimes from the employers, sometimes the employer has to be in on it. Two questions. Why one, why is there such a culture within the trucking industry of trying to cheat on logs? I mean, why is that such a big issue that they had to mandate electronic logs to prevent people from cheating? Yeah, because they, they really put, you know, the, the truck drivers view it as a freedom thing. Who are they to tell me when I can work, when I can't, I know my own body, but it's really the mistreatment of truck drivers by the trucking industry. They're because they're paid by the mile and they're not paying for all the time, you know, there's, I read a study by the American Transportation Research Institute that when they go to pick up or deliver a load, uh, on average, they're stuck three to four hours. They can be stuck as much as eight hours. So that's eight hours, you know, three to eight hours of on-duty time eating against your 14-hour day, eating against your 70-hour work week, but you don't get paid for it. Uh, all the time they spend doing paperwork, when they have to go get the vehicle fixed, when they have to do inspections. They don't get paid for any of that time. When they're stuck in traffic, they're, what they're making per hour goes way down uh, because they're going slower and they're getting paid by the mile. So it is a really unfair system for truck drivers. Uh, and the only way they can make a decent living, despite all the hours they're working, is to cheat and work more hours than legally allowed. Uh, it is a sad state of affairs. If they would pay them by the hour or pay them a salary, uh, that would, which is something the government encourages but doesn't require, that uh, hardly anyone does. That would change everything. But right now, they they're under pressure to deliver on time. They're only paid if when they're driving, 
and that puts pressure on them to drive when they're not legally allowed to drive and when it's not safe to drive because they haven't had enough rest. So I've um, done a ton of trucking cases. I, I've never come across a long haul trucking company that paid its drivers by the hour or salary or anything like that. It's always by the mile. And the only time I ever see it, you know, paid by the hour or salary are usually um, sort of local, local truck drivers, at least in my experience. I think I've only seen one or two that don't pay by the mile in the long haul. It's very rare. Because it's better for the it's better for the trucking company. And look, the trucking company would rather, from an economic point, you know, if the driver can only drive that truck two or three hours that day, that's only two or three hours of income. That because the truck driver, the trucking company is getting paid by the load. They're not getting paid by the hour. Uh, and so, you know, economically, they would rather have that driver have an incentive to cheat. And a lot of this, it's not just drivers doing it. It's dispatch, dispatchers know it. Dispatchers are pushing it. Um, and, you know, if we go into how they tune on the electronic logs, it's very easy for a trucking company that wants to catch them to catch them. Uh, but they have to care about it and not look the other way. And, and unfortunately, the stories I've heard from truckers are that they're being encouraged uh, to cheat because the trucking company wants to get the load there on time. So I don't want you to give away all of the things in the book, but what are some of the ways that, um, that you found just based on your research that they're cheating on uh, these electronic logs with the computers? Well, there's a few things. One, there's something called personal conveyance. And so let's say I'm off duty. I stop at the truck stop and I decide, you know, I want to go drive and, and have dinner somewhere during my off duty time. And so I'm going to drive the truck to a restaurant, eat and drive back to the truck stop. Well, I'm, that's not on duty time. I'm not driving the truck for the company, so I'm allowed to do that. Or if I want to go drive to my sister's house, because I just happen to be in the same town as my sister. So I'm going to drive to my sister's house, go hang out there, and then drive back. Even if my sister lives an hour away, that's still not considered on duty time. So they, they have something called a personal conveyance, where you can tell the thing, I'm in a personal conveyance, and it will allow you to drive but log it off duty. Uh, now, a personal conveyance, you cannot be working on behalf of your employer or, you know, moving the load on behalf of your employer when you're doing it, but it's the way they do it. That's, I'm going to drive my first hour in personal conveyance so I can get more time today. Or I'm going to drive to the loading dock on personal conveyance. And then I'm going to say off duty, not driving, you know, when I'm there loading when I should be on duty. And so, you know, the hour I spend getting there, I'm going to have personal conveyance. And then I'm going to spend three or four hours there being loaded and I'm going to leave that off duty. Now I've got five hours that I've logged myself as off duty. I've counted as towards my 10 hour rest. I've not gotten enough sleep and then I can start my drive time. Uh, so that's one big, big way they're doing it. Does it show up on, like if you get an electronic log printout, does it show up as personal conveyance or how would you recognize it? It, it may or it may not. So what you want to look for, one, you want to make sure you're requesting, and it's something we're working on revising our discovery after I've done the, uh, the research for the book. Uh, you want to request any personal conveyance time, any driving time that's not reflected, any what they call unassigned driving time, which is when they don't even log in and they drive the truck and then they log in later. Uh, but you also want to look at the, if the electronic log is set up properly, uh, logging device set up properly, it should have a latitude and longitude coordinate from the GPS every time they have a change of duty status. So what you'll find is they go off duty one place and they come back on duty in another place. Well, you got to look at that and say, okay, well, how do they teleport from one place to another? 
and then start doing the discovery, you know, give me the documents showing me what was happening during these miles that this vehicle was driven. Uh, although sometimes they're really smart about it, you know, and what, one of the reasons you need to really, you know, if you can look at my, if you can, there are documents that will give you mileage too. It just depends. You got to, you need to find out what system it is, get the user's manual, what reports can be run. Because another thing they'll do is, let's say they have, they're staying at a truck stop that's, let's say, an hour from where they're going to do the pickup or delivery. And they know they're going to be stuck there for a while. And then they're going to head back the opposite direction where they pass that truck stop again. So they'll go to the, they'll go stop at the truck stop, uh, go off duty, do their rest. And then they'll drive to the, drive either not log in or drive personal conveyance to the shipper or receiver. And then they will, or even unplug the, the logging device and drive to the shipper or receiver, get loaded up drive back to the truck stop, so, you know, three, four, five, six hours have passed, then they go on duty, and then they start their trip from the truck stop. Um, but it's, but they don't pop around because they started and ended at the same place of the truck stop. That's clever. <laughs> yeah, and so also look at, you know, if they have, you know, they, they have a bill of lading showing they picked up or delivered somewhere, but the logs don't ever show them getting there. Um, you know, things like that. Do you have one more way that you'd like to share? Uh, sure. Another way. Uh, now, the trucking company has to go along with this, but I've read a lot of stories in, of uh, this happening. Is they, They'll create a phantom driver in the logging system, and the trucking company has to do this for them. They can't do it themselves. So they'll, they'll drive so many hours as, as the phantom driver and then switch to themselves and drive so many hours. Uh, and so if we ask for the logs, we'll only get their logs, and it won't show the phantom driver's logs. Uh, and so they may even claim to us they had a co-driver because they'll have another name, uh, you know, in there. And so, you know, anytime you have a report with a law, uh, you know, a case where the police report only shows one person in the vehicle, but they have two sets, you know, team driving logs, you, that's a big sign. Uh, something's going on there. Well, cool. Well, I know there's a few more ways that you talked about in the presentation. Yeah, but at least 10, but I got to give some reason to... Give Carl guys a little money and buy the book when it comes out next year. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if we have a little bit more time, but one of the yeah. other cutting edge topics that you talked about in the presentation that we just want to give people a little taste of is uh, drug and alcohol testing. It was introduced by Charlie Sheen, which was hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, tell us about what you talked about for drug testing. Yeah, this scared the heck out of me. And, and uh, actually, this research started on one of our cases where, you know, we, we had a case where a, a driver, a truck driver on meth rear-ended our client, uh, and he got arrested at the scene. And when we got the evidence photos from the police, not only did they find methamphetamine, but they found a flask full of pee. And I'm like, gross. Why? I mean, I've seen, like, the the gallon water jugs full of pee because they just pee in them while they're driving, but I've not felt like a, a flask full of pee and the guy's belongings hidden. Uh, and then I found out that unless you've already tested positive and you're like in a, in a program to see whether or not you can, you know, safely drive again after testing positive as part of your rehabilitation efforts, um, when you go give a pee test, there's nobody in there with you. You're all by yourself. And so, yes, there are things they do. They measure the temperature. They look at, you know, whether it's diluted, but, there are a lot of ways to beat a pee test. You know, you can bring in, you can pee when you're clean and keep it and then, you know, warm it up and bring it in with you. You can get someone else's pee. They actually sell powdered urine and you add water to it and then it has a heater. You add water to it and you shake it up and then it automatically heats it and keeps it at, at 
98.6 degrees for a few hours. So you can have it with you. Uh, and then there's like cleanses and stuff you can drink that are, you know, some are more effective than others on, uh, on helping you beat a drug test. And so, you know, so they, you know, I'd heard there are ways to beat them. I'm like, well, how, how much could this really be going on? Well, there's another way of doing drug testing called hair follicle testing, where instead of uh, doing a pee test, they pull out a hair. And that usually tells whether you've done certain kind of drugs, usually in the last 30 days, we've done like a pee test. You know, I, I know marijuana can stay in the system for a long time, but like cocaine is only there for metabolites for a couple of days, methamphetamine for a couple of days. So a lot of these guys, if they just stay clean when they know they're going to have a drug test for a couple of days and then go back to using, uh, they'll be okay. Uh, and so a number of trucking of the bigger trucking companies uh, went to using hair follicle testing on top of the urinalysis. And, you know, what they found is just in their companies, I think it was 12,000 something drivers that passed the P test that failed the hair follicle test. And then they, uh, they hired the university, uh, some researchers at the University of Central Arkansas to say, hey, you know, we've got a sample of, I think the sample was a little under 200,000 drivers. Um, and they said, you know, can we extrapolate? Is this population representative of? And they, they looked at it and they said, yes, your population is representative of the drivers. And based on this, we estimate there's about 310,000 truck drivers on the road today that have used drugs in the last 30 days and uh, would fail a hair follicle test, but yet are able to work the system and uh, and drive under our current test testing regime. I mean, I just can imagine how people would feel if that number was like commercial airline pilots that were on drugs flying airplanes. I mean, I think people don't think about it in that context, but they should because these things are huge and can kill people. Well, they and, kill people in airplanes too. Oh. Right, right. But I mean, you know, that's, that's. I think uh, people would be more shocked or horrified if they found Con out there's three. Congress has been mandating that the government come up with a, an approved hair follicle test that will be, because right now they're not allowed, they're allowed to do hair follicle testing as an optional test, but it, it can't replace the P test. They still have to pay for the P test and do the hair follicle test. So they've been, they've been ordered for years by Congress to come up with a test method uh, that would be approved so that the, the carrier could at least have the option of doing either one, uh, but they, they've never gotten around to doing it. So meanwhile, we have literally hundreds of thousands of 18 wheeler drivers on drugs on our highways. Uh, it's insane. Uh, of course, the answer is that you know, motor carriers should start doing hair follicle testing anyway. If they know there's hundreds of thousands of these people out there, well, then you know, spend the extra hundred bucks or whatever it is and test for it. But unfortunately, most of them, you know, with this driver shortage, are just you know, hey, they can that's how they drive those extra hours, <laughs> right? Right, scary stuff. It's scary stuff, but it's our job to catch it. Expose it and you know, put those companies out of business if we can. Yeah. Or at least make their insurance rates go up. <laughs> where it's cheaper yeah. where it's cheaper to pay for a hair follicle test than it is to pay another big claim. So it's my understanding, speaking of insurance, that they're trying to raise the minimum limits for truck insurance. I don't know how far along it's gotten. I don't think it's too yeah, they, 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 it's a political thing. So the House, uh, I thought, is it in the House version? I know it was in the House committee. It came, I made it out of a committee in the House. Uh, I don't know if it passed 
in the House version or not, I don't remember. I think it may have, but then the Senate has to go with it, and they have to. So, but you know, they have to just keep working it, keep working on. It. They've been working on it for a long time. I think it's gotten through the House more than once to raise the limit. I think the 4.3 million uh, instead of 750,000 and index it to inflation. And the way they've come up with that is that, you know, it was set at 750,000 back in 1980, uh, and medical costs have gone through the roof. Other things have, you know, inflation. You know, 1980, you know, gas was, what, 25 cents a gallon or something? I mean, the it's a different world now. And so they just wanted to index the original 750 to inflation to make it the same, you know, today's dollars. Uh, we'll just have to see if that goes through. I, I don't think anything, you know, I, I pray that it happens. I, I doubt it's really going to happen before the election. Um, but it's, uh, unfortunately, every time we try to do that, then other people try to say, well, this is only about trial lawyers. They forget about it. It's, their, it's the victims that are suffering with these, you know, you put somebody in a wheelchair, you kill two or three people in one crash, you know, $750,000 does not go very far. A lot of times the medical bills alone are more than that. So it yeah. really messes things up. So hopefully they'll eventually do that. But a lot of that's going to have to do with who gets elected in November, hopefully we get a lot of people. Uh, I don't care whether they're Republican or Democrat. I care whether they're pro-civil justice and how they are on our issues. And hopefully we get a lot more people in Congress and in the Senate that are good on our issues. Yeah. yeah. And our issues are the issues of victims. So. Yep. Okay. Well, everybody, wear your mask, stay safe, social distance, vote, and uh, join us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you, Mallory. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and company vehicle cases. If you have a case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. We have experience finding potential defendants that other firms miss, and we've added millions of dollars to cases by finding these sources of recovery. If you have a catastrophic injury or death case where the policy limits appear to be insufficient, give us a call. If we can find another defendant, we can partner on the case. And if we can't, then we won't ask for any of the fees. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to podcast at triallawyernation.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our hosts, guests, or contributors and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.